There is a library that exists at the nexus where all other universes collide. Inevitably, things wind up there by mistake. Books, artifacts, people. This is the place where things from all universes end up when they get lost. This is the Eternity Archives. Welcome to the Eternity Archives, an actual play podcast where we play interdimensional archivists doing their darndest to keep the fabric of reality together at the expense of some worlds, maybe possibly. My name is Baffy, my pronouns are they, them, and I play really Jaquel, a tiefling who can occasionally be cool sometimes. They did some cool stuff last time. I'm proud of them. Every arc, we learn, teach, and play a new TTRPG, and this arc, it is going to be Kids on Bikes! But before we get on our bikes and pedal away into adventure, why don't my co-hosts introduce themselves and answer a quick icebreaker question. If you were a child running away from home, what would you bring in your backpack? Hi, my name is Ziva. My pronouns are she, her, and I play uh, Linda, the adorable human office lady, who, as we learned last arc, is maybe kind of a bad driver, actually. <laughs> but she sure has fun doing it. Her daddy told her to go 10 under in the left lane. <laughs> in the left lane, and that's how she's going to drive. So if I were a kid running away from home, I would want to pack graham crackers in my backpack. Because I loved them a lot when I was a kid. I still love them when I'm an adult. They are full of um, both fiber to keep you full for a while and carbohydrates to give you quick energy. And um, you never know when there's going to be a situation where you desperately need a s'more or uh, a peanut butter graham cracker sandwich. So I think that's my answer. I think I'd bring graham crackers. Well, I'm Dorka. My pronouns are she, her. I play Zen, the barbarian lizard woman. If I were a kid running away from home, my backpack would probably just be stuffed with books because that's the kind of kid I was way back when. Every time we went anywhere, I would always have to pack an extra bag just for books. So I think if I were running away, that would be what I would have with me. Let me tell you, the Kindle was a game changer for me. I used to read a lot and then I stopped because... That's what happens when you grow old, I guess. And then I got a Kindle. When I first got the Kindle, I was reading like way more than I had in like a decade. And it was like crazy. And then I stopped again because that's what happens. <laughs> <laughs> we have a returning guest for this arc, Kat from Sword of Symphonies. Please introduce herself to us, esteemed guest king. Hi! My name is Kat. I use she, they pronouns, and I am here to help. I am the host king of the podcast, Sword of Symphonies, where my good, cool friends playtest my game Heroic Chord, which you might know if you listen to that arc of the Eternity Archives. I hope that you did, because it's very nice. I play normal human Magnolia, who's regular and normal. And human. And human. And human. And if I were a kid running away from home, my bag would be full of stuffies. Because I was a very, very sentimental child, and I would not want to leave them at home if I was running away, because they were my friends. All right, let's get into the meat and bones of this discussion. 
Kids on Bikes. Kids on Bikes is written by John Gilmore and Doug Lewandowski. And the tagline is a role-playing game about small towns and big adventures. It is a game meant to facilitate the setting of a supernatural fantasy in a like small quiet town similar to Stranger Things or insert like any other modern American supernatural fantasy story here. It's all about small towns, small town Americana, all that good stuff. It's meant to be more nostalgic and portray mystery in settings where everyone didn't have a smartphone. But unlike the title of the game, kids aren't necessarily required. There's character creation sheets for teens and adults who can take different traits than kids, but we will get into that later. For the purposes of trying to convey the game in as much of the intended spirit as possible, we will be playing kids in this version, or at least uh, not adult versions of our characters, because we've done that before. We've done not adult humans. That's just called Monster of the Week. If you'd like to skip the rules discussion and get right to the character creation, head to insert timestamp here. And if you'd like to jump right into play, head to insert timestamp here. So Kids Bikes encourages a collaborative storytelling environment. And as such, the book starts off with the group creating a setting together. Uh, because of the nature of the show, I skipped over the steps since there's a specific narrative I'm, I'm going for. But for the folks possibly interested in playing this at home, the book suggests that for a collaborative world building experience, each player goes around the table and answers a list of prompts, uh, such as like naming the town and the state, uh, what industry the location is known for, what are they famous or infamous for? Uh, I think there's even questions about like, is it a stagnant or flourishing economy? So there's lots of different questions to fill out the town. Then after you go down and answer those questions, each player shares a rumor about the town. The GM decides which of these are true or untrue, but doesn't necessarily have to tell the players. It's just a vehicle for the GM to flesh out the town even more uh, and possibly help them, you know, flesh out the story that they want to tell. To be transparent at the start, we did play a few practice games because, as I've mentioned, I have a bad tendency to, like, not be used to the rules and forget them. So I wanted to not do that on uh, the show where we teach people how to play the game. So at least when we were uh, doing our practice games, I, I actually really enjoyed world building with, with everyone. I think it was, um, it, it's just nice to get input from other people, especially since I think I personally tend to get very in my own head about world building and other people have have good ideas. Yeah, I thought the collaborative world building was a really cool element to add to the game, both because it puts a lot less weight on the GM to come with a fully formed world and highly detailed campaign before you start. And also because it really works well for this setting where you're in this small town where like everyone's in everyone's business and there's lots of rumors flying and, you know, there's like these these iconic spots and these things everyone knows and this sort of collective knowledge because it really does, it really does feel like it is a lived in place place where everyone knows different bits of things about the town. It helps really flesh that out. And it works well with the theme, of course, when you can bounce off of off of rumors to create bigger things. Yeah. And I think this works really well for like small scale world building. I think something like this would be a lot harder for like a full fledged fantasy world where you have to come up with like all of the rules and everything that's going on. 
But for this, it's just like one town, you're all working on it together, which gives you all sort of a level of investment in it. And it really feels like sitting around and like talking about the town where you grew up and like figuring out the weird shit about that. And I really enjoyed that. And I think that works for this setting in a way that it wouldn't work for every setting. My favorite part is the fact that the rumors don't have to be true, because uh, that also kind of takes some of the pressure off the players as well. To like to have the perfect thing that's going to make this setting come to life. It's like, well, no, people believe that the lady living on the edge of the town is a witch and eats children. That's a thing people believe. Whether or not it's true, who cares? Just keep spitballing, keep throwing things out. And so it was kind of a, a low pressure and very easy and casual way to introduce concepts that kind of still left the ultimate decision of what things would look like to the GM, but in a way that I think was easy and casual for everyone yeah and the gm could even take like bits and pieces of the rumors like maybe the lady at the edge of town does eat children but she's not a witch she's just unhinged um, she's just a cannibal <laughs> she's just a cannibal you know sometimes yeah. that happens yeah and then i don't know for me i i think in our practice game i did try to make all the rumors true just because i think that's also very fun but you know like that's that is up to your discrepancy as a gm live your dreams so I'd say the most unique aspect of kids, kids bikes, I'm just going to call it that. That's only one less syllable, but that's what I'm sticking with is the stat system. It's very interesting um, because instead of having a static number, so like in D&D, you rolled your stat and then like your strength was 15 or whatever. Each stat is represented by a die. So, for example, there are six stats brains, brawn, fight, flight, charm, and grit. And I won't go in depth about explaining those because they're pretty straightforward. Um, the only one I would maybe kind of explain here is that brawn and fight are different. Brawn is like you're strong and you can like lift stuff, whereas fight is like your actual fight stat and like how scrappy you are. But everything else is pretty straightforward there. So, for example, if your character is particularly book smart, then your die for that stat maybe would be a d20. And whenever you needed to roll for an action requiring brains, you would roll a d20. If the same character was uh, maybe not the most agile type of person and flight was their weakest stat, then you'd use the lowest die to represent flight, which was uh, which is a d4. Then you'd assign a unique die for each stat. So a d4, a d6, d8, d10, D12, and D20. You can also pick tropes that the book provides for you, which decide your stats, or you can just assign them yourself. Just kind of depends on how in-depth you want to go with it. So you can also pick your character's age group, such as child, teen, or adult, and each age group will have their own stat bonuses. So everyone here will be playing a teen today, so they automatically receive the rebellious strength, which is when rolling stat checks, teens add plus one to their fight and bronze checks because they're scrappy and powered with so many hormones flowing through their body. All teens are rebellious. Yeah, that's just the standard. Your standard teen. Then you can pick two strengths and two flaws. Strengths are mechanical, such as adding to your roles in certain situations, whereas flaws are more for flavor and like character development. In a normal game, you'd proceed with introductions and questions, which is just a way to establish connections with each other's characters. Once again, because of how our narrative is established, we already know each other. This isn't necessary for our game, but I also really like these for the standard games. 
The book has a list of questions you can ask depending on if the characters have a negative or positive view of the other characters, and you can roll a d20 to decide which to ask. Then after that, there's just a couple details to fill out, such as your character's motivation, which is more flavor, and then their fear, which is more mechanical based and can affect your roles later on. So like, I don't know if you're hiding, but you're afraid of spiders and there's a nest of spiders above your head. Maybe that would impact your your role there. Then the last thing is the backpack, which is just your character's inventory and what they have on them. This kind of has more impact depending on what age group you're in. So like like if you're a child and you have your backpack with you, maybe all the stuff you have is just on your person uh, because you don't have that many resources. Whereas if you're like an adult with money and stuff like that, uh, it is much easier to get the supplies you need for whatever trap you're about to lay or or what have you. I really liked when we were playing our practice games, this whole like questions thing, because like the world building, it really gave our characters like connections before we even started. A lot like in Monster of the Week, and I think that's the thing that I really liked about Monster of the Week is just the collaborative character building. What I didn't like about this character creation system so much, I've played other games before where your stats are represented by dice instead of numbers, and I tend to like them, but I don't like it here. And that's mainly because there is such a huge difference between a D12 and a D20. Every other stat, D4, D6, D8, D10, D12, you're going up by measures of two. And then you jump to a D20. And it just makes it so unlikely that you're going to roll numbers like between those two dice that, I don't know, it it seems a little unbalanced to me. I have really mixed feelings about it. And the unbalancedness of it is, is definitely something that is not necessarily a problem. It's something that makes me hesitant about like this choice as a go-to. I think the idea of representing your stats with different dice is a really like cool idea but since this is the only one I've played this is the only one I can I can make a judgment on and yeah there's not a huge difference between a d4 and a d6 but there is a huge difference between a d4 and a d20 and even a d12 and a d20 and I think I think you're absolutely right that that is um it's just not terribly balanced Having systems that are purposefully unbalanced is absolutely a design choice you can make. And I think it can provide spice and fun um, to the world and and to the way your roles go. But I feel like it's a little more unbalanced than maybe they intended in this particular game. But we'll we'll touch base on that after we've we've played on air and uh, seen how it works out in this particular setting. Usually when you see games that have a die attached to a stat, they usually cap at a 12. For I think the exact reason you brought up Dorka is that like it's baby steps from four to 12 and then just one giant leap for mankind. (laughs) (laughs) So seeing one that includes a 20 is a little bit rarer. I do like the difference between brawn and fight because uh, I'm the kind of person who likes to play gentle giants. So I I like when a game mechanically supports that. Yeah, that's an interesting point to bring up because I personally was not huge on the nuances of these stats. But now that you say it like that, I think I think I do like, you know, just giving players more agency to kind of do what they want to do. I always support that. But, you know, I'm also like the angry person that's just like, why would they do things the way they do it? I don't understand. But now I understand. So 
I do think some of the way that these stats are are labeled is a little bit confusing. Like there's definitely situations where you could argue that um, that like lying to someone is charm or maybe lying to someone is brains or maybe it's even grit. And I think unlike something like Heroic Horde where you can kind of like pitch as to why it's a good fit in this game, you're supposed to use it more like a like a D&D or a monster of the week stat where it's supposed to be linked to specific actions. And so in that case, there were at least in our pregame, there were times when I was like, wait, hold on, what stat is this? Because it's not always clear. Um, And I think that is mostly to do with the naming. But I do have some minor complaints about the organization in this book, and which is that if you're looking for something specific, like what stat am I supposed to use for this particular action? um, It can actually be very hard to find. There aren't a lot of cheat sheets in this book, and a lot of times they add tables that actually make it much harder to read instead of simplifying the information. So this is not my favorite organized book that I have ever read, even though it's not super long or super dense and there's lots of examples. It can be more confusing to read. This is a game that I would recommend that you play with someone who's already played it. Maybe this is one of those games where having a hard copy would make a difference and you can physically flip back and forth and check tables and mark pages and... But ideologically, I always love when violence gets its own stat. I just, I really like the freedom to make a character who's just like huge and muscular, doesn't know which end of a fist is for punching, couldn't harm a fly. And uh, any game that has like a violence stat that's separate from any of your other stats is, I like it. I think that there's a limit to making things separate stats, White Wolf, but this one I'm all for. Yeah. We were talking about stats a lot, so I guess the next thing we can get into are actually stat checks, which is where I have a lot of my opinions on, so get ready for me to put on my yelling hat. Stat checks for kid bikes is a lot like other TTRPGs. You're presented with a thing that happens in the game, you respond with how your character reacts, and then you roll a die to see if you succeed or not. However, you might be thinking, well, what if my character is Garbo at flight and has a D4, but they're in a situation where the check they need to make is a 10. And that's where Kids Bikes introduces the mechanic of exploding dice. Say your character rolls their D4. If they roll a 1 through 3, they're still shit out of luck. But if they roll a 4, their die explodes, meaning they can roll it again. A die can explode as many times as you roll the highest number, so it's possible that your little d4 can make that 10 difficulty check, or at least lessen the repercussions of failure. And this is the part where I put on my yelling cap. I don't like how the stat checks work in this game. <laughs> um, it's, it's as people were saying earlier with, with the die, with like there's a big discrepancy between like a d4 and a d20 or a d12 and a d20 as a gm it makes setting difficulty more difficult than it should be on top of that as we were mentioning with the different charts there's a lot of charts in this and i love organization in a way that's presented in a pleasing and clear manner i don't like the charts that are just like it just feels unnecessary because there's like a different tier of difficulty for like it's like one to three or like four to six and then it just goes on and so on and so forth and i know we've talked about before where in D, you know sometimes it can be a little confusing but for the most part D is pretty straightforward with the dcs because it's just every five so like five is very easy 10 is like average 15 is a little bit more difficult 20 is supposed to be very hard 30 is like impossible that's it Um, Whereas in this game, it's like a 10 to 12 is in the book. It's like you would not be surprised if someone who was good at the skill succeeded at it. But here's my beef with that. A 10 to 12 
on a D20, that's still just like a 50% chance. So if I'm not surprised that someone who is like good at the skill succeeds at it, why do they only have a 50% chance to succeed on it? Like, I guess you could have like strengths that add bonuses to it, but that's not like the same as in for instance, D&D or other games where you get like a plus five to your stat where it's like, okay, I still rolled like shit, but I have like a plus 10. And so I'm still going to hit like I roll a five. I'm still going to hit a 15, which is still like above average difficulty. And I'm still going to succeed even though I rolled low. Whereas in this game, it's like, well, I rolled a D20. It's my best stat. I rolled a one. That's all I'm going to get. I'm just going to get a one and I'm just going to flat out fail that. And that doesn't make sense to me. And also, like, I understand that this game wants to facilitate failures that make the story more interesting. But to me, there's a difference between facilitating failure and offering an option to that versus you're fucked. Like, you, you, you're just fucked. You're just, it's a D4. You're not going to succeed. There's no fucking way unless the die explodes, which is like, depending on your die that you're rolling is anywhere from a 25% chance, which is actually the highest and, and just decreases from there. I like the concept of exploding die because I do like the idea that it's always possible to succeed. And I also like the fact that it's it's weighted so that the worse you are at the stat, the more likely it is that you're going to have this exploding die. So like, you know, a D4 is a 25% chance of, of being able to potentially get beyond that that first roll, which is interesting. I found it a little bit confusing. Something about the way it was worded in the book. I was like, huh, what? Until you like walked us through it. And then I was like, okay, now I get it. So again, that's just a, I think I'm just on a different brainwave than these designers and authors personally. Um, So, you know, that may or may not be the case for you. Don't, don't take that as, as gospel. I do agree with the fact that it's, it's hard to figure out the difficulty and it can be very heavily weighted to failure without having things that compensate to make failure more interesting. So like in 13th age where you could fail on a roll, but if it was, you know, odd, it could, you could have this effect or if it was even, you could have that effect or you could have points that then turned into a bigger effect later so that even when you were failing, you were still getting something for it. Or something like what's so cool about Monster Blood, where failing meant that it affected your character like immediately. And then you got a chance to role play it out. But something was happening and changing even when you were failing without that necessarily having to only rely on the narrative. With this game, it feels like you fail a lot. You don't even get experience points like you do in something like Monster of the Week. You just kind of fail. And that can be a really interesting turning point for the narrative. But I tend to like it when games reward or at least compensate for failure in a mechanical way and in addition to in a narrative way. I think those two together is where failure is most interesting as a game mechanic. Yeah, just a quick, there are adversity tokens when you fail, which which is one of the mechanics we kind of forgot about when we were playing, which oh, is good right. that we played before. But adversity tokens is is maybe not that great of a consolation prize because all it is is basically you anytime you fail you get an adversity token and you can expend the adversity token for different strengths you have or when you're like rolling your next check you can add a plus one for your adversity token which is like plus one is great and all but it's not once again like the numbers don't exactly add up like if you're rolling a d4 and you get a three and you're like okay well i guess i could use my adversity token but it's not going to really do anything you know, I think Ziva's point still stands regardless of whether you consider the adversity tokens or not. But that might just be me. <laughs> the thing is that like single die unmodified in any game is going to be massively swingy, massively swingy. 
That's the nature of resolving checks with a single unmodified die roll. We did a cat's cradle on this just recently, so it's really fresh on my mind, just the discussion of the way different dice mechanics make your game feel. And the problem is when you're rolling single die unmodified, it's just anything can happen. No matter how good you are at something, you can still completely just absolutely eat shit, fall on your face and die. To a lot of people, I think myself included, single die unmodified is unsatisfying for that reason, but I'm open to this. I'm gonna not whine about the dice, I promise. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm already whining about the dice, so, you know, it's fine. (laughs) Yeah, like, I I agree with Bappy that, like, it's hard to set a difficulty check for this game because in Dungeons & Dragons, you're basing everything off of the assumption that the player is rolling a d20. And in this, there's just such a massive difference between a player with a d4 in a stat and a player with a d20 in the stat. And, you know, even though the exploding dice can make the impossible possible if you're very, very, very lucky, in that case, it's, I don't know, it's going to be harder for the person with the higher stat to get that exploding die. In theory, I like the concept of the exploding die as like a crit mechanic. I think that can be very cool. But because of, I think, what Kat said, how swingy it is here, it doesn't really feel, it doesn't feel like you're going to see that happening very often, especially if the DM's like struggling to figure out how difficult they should make each task. And the other thing is that like, I don't really think it fits the feel of the game, really. If you're failing so often, and it does seem like this game wants you to fail a lot and get these adversity tokens and use the adversity tokens. I feel like a game like Henshin did that better. Then those games, you're choosing failure for a future advantage. And in this game, you're just failing and kind of have a nebulous token for something in the future. And when you think of this sort of genre, like it's always kind of supernatural and dangerous feeling. But I wouldn't say that failure is like a huge part of the genre, especially because it's like, it's kids. There's always something hopeful. You're always rooting for them. You're always expecting them to succeed in the end. Yeah, it would be it would be like if they were trying to get to the pirate ship in the Goonies and they just fall in that hole and just all fucking die. Like, it's like, <laughs> that's that's a really good point is that it's just not very like narratively linked I hadn't even thought about that. But now that you bring it up, I'm like, yeah, I'm thinking of like the Goonies and E.T. and Stranger Things and a lot of these kids on bikes, really classic adventures. And there is there's always this element of hope and of unexpected success instead of unexpected failure. And how you would turn that into a game mechanic, I don't know, because you do want the risk of failing or it's not interesting. But this is a surprisingly difficult and harsh game for generally like the themes it's going for in regards to like setting difficulty checks and this is something i will admit that i need to get better at and will hopefully be better at in this upcoming session i had a tendency to try to set the difficulty check based on the character's die meaning like if they were a d4 i would be like okay well i guess i'll scale it down a bit because in my head i was just like well like this should be hard i want them to have a chance of failure but i don't this check shouldn't be that hard like it shouldn't be a 10 if it's like a d4 and you only have a d4 like i i didn't want it to be impossible and so sometimes it didn't 
seemed to match up to what was in in my mind. And maybe an opportunity for me as a GM was trying to let that go and trying to embrace the failure and seeing how I could pivot the story based on how everyone failed, which I think is is the spirit of of the game of what they're trying to do. I can't say how easy that will be because obviously I had a difficult time doing it. But yeah, we'll see. All right. So in terms of more mechanics, the game also presents two different kinds of actions players can take. There's planned actions and snap decisions. Flavor-wise, they're pretty self-explanatory. Planned actions is the Scooby gang setting up a trap for the masked capitalist landowners, whereas the other is them running away from the rigged up flying mannequins and having silly shenanigans. Mechanically speaking, planned actions offer you a choice between making a die roll for the applicable stat, or you can take half the value of the stat's die. So if you're using whatever stat you had as a d20, then you could, instead of roll for it, which, as we mentioned, can be very swingy, like you could get a 1, you could just take a flat 10. Whereas snap decisions do not let you take half that value. So both actions let use adversity tokens, which we talked about. It's whenever you fail a roll, you get an adversity token as a resource, and you can spend plus one to add to your result. Uh, with planned actions, other people at the table can contribute their tokens, but they cannot with snap decisions. To me, it's like self-explanatory, but basically planned actions is like you and your group of friends is taking time to set up this trap, whereas snap decisions is like you stumble into a room and there's an axe murderer in there and you're like separated from your friends. Well, they can't help you because it's like a spur of the moment thing. So another defining characteristic of kids' bikes is the powered character. So rules as written, the powered character is an NPC that is controlled by everyone at the table. Each player gets an aspect of the PC handed to them. In this case, when I say PC, I am talking about powered character. In other contexts, PC usually means player character. But right now, PC, kids' bikes, powered character. So each player gets an aspect of the PC handed to them, and when an opportunity arises in the narrative to bring in that character through that aspect, the player in charge of that trait controls the PC. So for instance, in one of our practice games, we had a PC that could turn invisible. Um, At one point in the story, the group needed to sneak around and snoop for some information. The person in charge of the invisibility aspect took charge of the PC and controlled them for that event. Disclaimer, I know it's kind of against the spirit of the Attorney Archives to bend the rules when we're supposed to be teaching people the game and kind of the rules as written, but I'm going to be bending the rules (laughs) because in my experience, GMing kids' bikes, this mechanic is difficult to navigate just because by the nature of the genre, the powered character is like mysterious and they're tied to the plot and the narrative and they know or are connected to the things that the players don't know about yet. So for the most part, it's out of people's experiences to control a character that is not directly their own. So people are usually reluctant to do so, which is, of course, up to the GM to encourage people to do that. But personally, I don't like that mechanic much in the first place. My suggested rule bend for this, I saw it as a homebrew thing on Reddit. Players aren't going to be directly controlling the powered character, but they're still going to use the aspects. It's just they're using the aspects to basically very strongly suggest what they want the PC to do. And then I will just walk them through that. Basically, we've had experiences where it was like 
the players take the PC and are like, and I'm just like, okay, go ahead and do the thing you want to do with the PC. And then they're just like, well, what am I, what am I doing? I don't know what's going on. Like, I don't know what you're planning. Like, how am I supposed to control them through this event? So I think with this, you give the players the agency of doing that, of controlling the powered character in a way, but it's less of like, you're throwing them in the sandbox and you're just like, okay, go for it. This mechanic doesn't make sense. <laughs> um, I'm just gonna say that it's like, uh, like Bappy said, like the powered character is supposed to be mysterious and stuff, and it would be like in ET if the kid already went in knowing that ET could like do shit and was like, okay, do this stuff now. But instead, like when ET does weird ET stuff, it's like, oh, this is new and interesting. And the other thing is like. The powered characters don't have stats. So like in our practice game where it's like, okay, I guess I'm controlling the powered character now. Do I just say what happens here? Like there was one instance where like one aspect of the powered character was that they were able to like to read and write. So when someone's supposed to be playing the powered character and we're asking the powered character questions, the person playing that communicate through writing aspect doesn't know the answers to these questions that only the GM knows. So it's kind of a, a useless aspect for a player to control. And I don't know, there was... I like the idea of the powered character, but a character controlled by the entire table in turns, I guess, is... Actually, I think doing it in turns would be a better way to do it than in aspects because characters are going to have aspects that they lean on more than others and i don't know i think it was a really clunky system that didn't really work for me i i have to agree that i was excited about the powered character going in because i was like oh a character that everyone controls and we learn little bits about them and get to like move them around the world um but i think yet yeah, narratively it it doesn't quite meet i feel like what they're going for and also I just, yeah, I had a hard time wrapping my head around how it was actually going to work in play for the exact reasons that Dorka mentioned and the exact reasons that uh, Bappy's homebrewing this, or rather borrowing someone else's homebrew. And we'll link that uh, in the comments, or rather we'll link that in the show notes so you all can um, follow up on it in case you're curious about playing um, kids' bikes on your own or you have been and are curious about this homebrew. Yeah, it just, it just never quite clinched for me. And so I'm really curious as to how it's going to turn out um, in this session where we're doing something slightly different. I like the idea, but I also just am not a huge fan of group controlled characters in this instance from the narrative perspective. I feel like you're not building a character, you're playing with a mechanic and that it would be very similar to just deciding everyone at the table, like there's an incident and everyone at the table gets their own powered aspect. You're not necessarily creating a fully fleshed out character because everyone's controlling one aspect. Yeah, I don't know. It just never quite quite got there for me. And I think this is the piece that I feel like needs the most homebrew figuring out what works best at your table versus what the rules are written. There's games that I'm comfortable playing right out of the box. And there's games that I feel like could use some tweaking. Honestly, most games could use a little tweaking because everyone's table is different. Um, and with this one, I'm like this whole mechanic, basically, you're going to have to adjust for your table, even though it's an interesting idea. I just don't think it quite works. Yeah, I mean, like, the idea of this is, like, it's like the spirit of the game. It's a very, very, very collaborative storytelling type of game, which is, like, you know, the idea is that you're making a character with your with your group. Like, even with, like, setting stats 
for uh, the powered character, which is which is something that we glanced over. Um, apparently, that is a thing you do do. Even when you're making the powered character and you're setting the traits and stuff, they're even like, oh, well, you don't have to set all the traits right from the start if you want. Like, you can reveal more as the game goes on. Or uh, with the stats, it's like, when you make the powered character, you set one stat for 1d20 and another stat for d4, and then you figure out the rest of the stats as you play. And so the whole thing, it is supposed to be like, you're collaborating with everyone, but once again, because of the things we mentioned, where it's like the powered character might know more things than the players do, then it's like weird to role play because it doesn't, it doesn't make sense, I guess. But yeah, we'll see. I'm sort of mentally comparing this to building the ship in Wild Sea, which is obviously not exactly the same because it's a, it's an object. It's not a character. But I loved that collaborative character, you know, that collaborative building. And by the time we were done, I was like, this ship is my child. I love it so much. <laughs> um, and when when talking about powered characters in kids' bikes so far anyway, I've been like, eh. I think it's important noting that collaborative group building, we've already talked about collaborative group building of settings and character relationships, that can be really powerful. And I, I really love those mechanics. And there's something about this particular one that just feels different. And maybe I'll, I'll be able to articulate it better at the end after we've we've dove back in and played again. But yeah, it's there really there really is something to be said about collaborative storytelling and collaborative building. But I'm not sure this hits the same notes that like building the ship in Wild Sea did. Just for example, that's the closest example I can think of. I think I've got I've got two thoughts. I've got two whole thoughts in my little brainsy right now. Um, the first one is that I think it's a genre problem. I think when you're playing a mystery genre game, players have an expectation of uncovering a mystery. And so that conflicts with collaboratively building the centerpiece of the mystery. Yeah. I think that maybe this mechanic would be better served in a game that wasn't a mystery. Who knows? The other one is that I personally, as much as I'm in favor of collaborative building exercises in games. I'm the kind of player who's very anxious about stepping on people's toes, especially the GM. I tend to like to give the GM space to do their own thing. So I was real uncomfortable <laughs> in our in our game with the powered character because I was like, I don't know what you have planned. What if I do something that messes up your plans? I'm going to feel like a jerk. I'm going to look like an absolute jerk. And I was not able to get past that anxiety and enjoy this mechanic. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Like, it's not something people are used to. Yeah, I think those are those are both really good points. So uh, with the powered character, they have one more mechanic. They have roles for their powers. So the PC has a pool of psychic energy tokens. The book recommends seven, which we will use. And whenever they use their powers, they spend one token. The GM sets a difficulty based on how practiced they are with that ability. And the player rolls 2d4. If they beat or exceed that number, the power works and the character suffers a side effect of using their abilities. If they fail, the player can spend additional psychic energy tokens to add plus one to the roll or accept the failure. My opinion on this, this is actually funny. This is actually a mechanic we haven't used yet because once again, it's one of the rules that I forgot we had. So this, this one will be brand new going in. I don't know how I feel about it. It's kind of the same thing of like, the numbers feel a little arbitrary to me. Like, why is it a 2d4? <laughs> like, that's so random. And that kind of has the implication that the difficulty scale you use for this is different from the difficulty scale you would use with regular player characters. But I, I don't feel like that was clearly written out. That could just be me missing something, perhaps. So we'll see. We'll see how this works out. 
So in summary, kids, bikes, each stat is its own die. Explosions, when you roll the max on a die, but the die didn't beat the check. Uh, adversity tokens when you fail. Power characters, everyone's best bud. So now let's have everyone introduce their kids' bikes characters. Okie doke. I guess I'll go first. So Linda is a teen in this universe. She is 19 because she's the oldest of the group. So I thought it makes sense. I mean, maybe Magnolia is older. We don't really know, but she at least uh, thinks she's the oldest of the group. So I went ahead and made her an older teen. So she's like right on the cusp of young adulthood. In this case, I used the archetype, the wannabe, just because I thought that that worked well for Linda, that she's always kind of been kind of a social climber, but not necessarily like, you know, she's not, she's not like a pageant girl. She's not, um, you know, like head of the PTA. She's just, she's sort of a social climber, but not someone who's like high up socially. Um, so a wannabe made perfect sense for what she would have been like as a teenager. For her fear, I chose being rejected, which both makes sense for Linda as a character and also, you know, where she was in her life. Um, and we mentioned back in Monster of the Week that um, being close to her friends was really important to her when she was a teenager. So her motivation then is um, related. It's helping her friends and her flaws are insecure and manipulative. And then for her skills, I chose um, loyal and protective, which both involve working together with your friends when things start going down. All right. So for Zen, Zen is going to be 17 in this game, a little bit younger than Linda. Zen's trope is the brutish jock because, you know, that makes sense. She's tough. She's kind of more likely to brute force her way through a problem than finesse it. But I also like the archetype of like the brutish jock actually being like kind of nice and cool, actually. So yeah, that means that brawn is her highest stat and brains is her lower, which I think still makes sense because this is going to be like an earth setting where she's going to be a human and kind of out of her depth. Her fear is not being able to be depended on when she's needed. And her motivation is proving herself and making up for past mistakes. Her flaws are ignorant and boastful. I think, again, ignorant is especially apt when she is in a human environment. And her strengths are tough and protective. I actually made Magnolia baby. Uh, Magnolia 16. In this game, don't worry about how old they are in real life. Don't worry about it. Real, actual Magnolia. Real, actual <laughs> I, I named it actual human magnolia for once.pdf because uh, if you listen to Heroic Chord, you know that magnolia is a dragon who is a shapeshifter, who is fascinated with normal humans and wants desperately to be perceived as one. Their fear is being known and their motivation is understanding others. I used a combination of, I mostly used the loner weirdo trope because it's magnolia. They're kind of an odd duck. But I took a couple of, I took a flaw and a strength from the laid back slacker because they're also kind of one of those. <laughs> um, Magnolia's flaws are they are absent minded and they are secretive, very secretive. And their strengths are that they are cool under pressure and easygoing. Hell yeah. All right. So we got our kids. Not really kids. They're like, teen well, teens are kids, I guess. We got our teens. We got our bikes, and we got our plethora of dice. Is everyone ready to get right into this shit? Go! Let's I do it. So, we are all at the library. What is everyone up to? 
So for Linda, after their last adventure, that really like hit home how little she understands about the universe and about the library as a whole. And between her desire to see her family again and uh, what's going on with Zen and what happened on the planet that they were on, she realizes that it is now more important than ever that she find a way to start communicating beyond just the library. Like she knows it's possible. She's not sure it's possible to like go to places, but like the journals work. So there must be a way to like interdimensional Zoom or Skype uh, for Linda, probably Skype. And <laughs> so FaceTime. <laughs> yeah, face, yeah, she's going to figure out how to how to FaceTime. Um and so like she she is determined. So she's been doing a lot of reading and a lot of research. Um, and she's also realized how much of this reading and research requires knowledge of skills that she hasn't done since she was in school. Like there's a lot of like math and physics that she hasn't touched in a while. And so Linda's basically doing the library equivalent of Khan Academy. She's like trying to teach herself as much stuff as she possibly can to try and learn more about the universe around them and to try and figure out how to communicate with these other worlds to see if there's anything she can do to actually help. Good for her. I'm gonna make you guys a pitch because I had this idea in my head. Could you imagine that there's a way for them to observe the different planes of reality that exist just as like watching it like a security camera? I imagine that that might exist like in the library like the the control room that we mysteriously found at the end of last arc i also imagine it's hard to like narrow the focus on that and find like something specific that's yeah that's what i was thinking if i may i was thinking real maybe found this security type room maybe not as secure as the administrator room that we found last time it's more of a communal tv room and you can't really it's difficult it's basically like if there were trillions of channels right so it's hard to find the one you're looking for but there is a way to just like planet watch reality watch and that's just what i think real stumbled upon and and has been watching their soaps but their soaps are like real life people in like (laughs) realities and they're just trying to like figure out what's going on with that. <laughs> so Zen was Zen was kind of on the same page with Linda there. Like it would be really cool and really helpful if sort of some sort of communication were possible. And she has been like trying to teach herself all sorts of like weird and unusual and useful skills while she's been here. But she really struggles with like a lot of the stuff that is just so far out of her realm of comprehension, like power and electricity, stuff like that. So I think she starts turning elsewhere and looking elsewhere and her search brings her back to the book drop and those bookshelves lined with countless unmarked books she starts to open those up and realizes that these are journals that belonged to archivists who are no longer here. And I think she's digging into that a little bit more. Oh my god, you're reading people's diaries? Yes. You're watching people! (laughs) Yeah, but you know... Linda's the only one doing something normal. (laughs) Linda's just like going back to community college. (laughs) You call going back to school normal? (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean, like, versus spying on people's lives and or journals, yes. <laughs> Real's just watching TV, all right? 
What's Magnolia been up to since the last time we saw them? I mean, the huge slacking off. When we see Magnolia at the beginning of this particular episode, we see Joseph just kind of doing library stuff, maybe picking out some books, just wandering around the library. And uh, everywhere he goes, a couple shelves behind, there's a huge fluffy white cat that is surreptitiously watching him for study purposes. What is Magnolia's fascination with Joseph? He seems very normal. Ah, yeah. Yeah, that Joseph's tracks. pretty normal. Yeah, he is a, yeah. a normal human. Yeah, he's a normal human, and it's established that Magnolia loves those. I'm, I'm glad they're filled with some so much self-admiration, because they are also <laughs> a normal yeah. human. Absolutely. You know what? You gotta love what you are. Yeah. You gotta. So... I think that's just what Rill's been up to in general, but I think on this particular day, they, you know, right before they get the known buzzing and vibrating of, of the journal, they're actually in the kitchen and they're trying to, I think between people watching, they're also kind of just stress cooking because they and their friends might have like doomed an entire civilization to not have power. And I think that weighs on them a lot. <laughs> So they are doing a lot of cooking. They're being in the kitchen to keep their mind off of things. Beside them is a tabaxi with like tabby cat markings who's using some kind of magic to like bring these wilted plants and stuff that's like back to life. Kind of like recycling in a way. You know when you leave something in the fridge for too long and you and you're like, "Oh man, I wanted to make something with this." That's what they're that's what what she's helping real with. Yeah, so that's what's going on there. And that is when the journal goes off. Dumpling is on the counter with the little chef's hat just stirring a pot of soup. Ro will be like, "Oh, I I guess duty calls. Um I will be back to keep cooking. Thank you for your help." Dumpling, you can stay here if you want. It's really up to you. And they just make a little chip, chip, chippy noise. Uh, and Rill's just like, I have no idea what that means. And then they, they go off to the book drop to meet the others. So Linda has her head on, on her hand. She's looking down at a sheet of figures that she's been trying to figure out. And she's just sitting there, just like mumbling under her breath. Her hair is a mess. She's got a pair of reading glasses on. When the journal finally goes off, she grunts in frustration because it's broken her thinking streak, but she's also uh, extremely relieved because she can stop doing this for a little bit. And so she sort of, uh, she gets on her feet, she uh, tucks her reading glasses away in her bag because she doesn't want anyone to see them. She kind of like ruffles her hair, is back into place as she can get it, and uh, heads off to the book drop post haste. Zen is already there standing by one of these bookshelves when the rest of you arrive you'll find her with like a small pile a, like not a pile a small stack of journals next to her because of this she hasn't noticed her own like going off behind her until the rest of you arrive and she realizes that oh there's probably something in there for her too that's usually how it goes so she puts the journal she's currently thumbing through back on the shelf, finds her own, looks inside. Magnolia ignores it. Magnolia ignores it? Yeah, Magnolia always ignores it. Magnolia doesn't like to work, but they do happen to be near the book drop and they kind of see the party gather. So they're sitting on top of one of the shelves, still being a kitty cat, kind of curious about what's happening and deliberately 
not sure if they're supposed to be involved in this. So they're just lurking. <laughs> yeah, they're lurking. Okay. I was reading. It was a nice moment. Okay. <laughs> So Rill's people watching, Zen's going through people's diaries, and then Magnolia's stalking Joseph and Zen. Yeah. <laughs> Come on now, the journals have never been diaries. Yeah. That's yeah. true. They're like logs. Yeah. yeah, that counts as a diary. <laughs> Only when it's got weird illicit stuff in it, like Rill's. Oh, what? Okay. What? Calm down. <laughs> Calm down, all right? <laughs> Everyone just chill out. Only when it's full of negging like Rill's. Oh, my God. Dark Dark Linda writes things in, in Rill's diary. Not diary, journal. Oh, no. That's naughty. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's not great. They have, a, they have a whole thing. So, okay. So I imagine Rill's and Linda have gathered. And as Magnolia is just not doing anything, they're just on top of a bookshelf being a kitty cat and they're not taking responsibility of their library archivist duties. They never do. The vibrating gets like more intense and the book starts glowing more and more and it's just just a shrill beeping comes out of your journal. Uh, does anyone else hear that? Is that is that do we need to be worried about that? That book is screening. It's not normal. Yeah. Where is that? coming. Magnolia scampers around the corner and emerges in their usual normal human form, which is a a tallish, lean person with strawberry blonde, well, blossom pink hair and just like a little white suit. Oh! Ha ha! Ha 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 ha! Ah. <laughs> Was that uh, your journal, Magnolia? Oh. This thingy? Yeah. As you hold it up, it it starts dimming and quiets a bit more. Shh, you. Quiet. We are going to have words later. <laughs> you are usually supposed to answer those when they when they start doing that, before they get to the screaming. I'm, I'm assuming. Yeah, I'd never heard one scream before. Oh, they do that. Oh, you're familiar with this. And Magnolia opens the journal. And in the journal, you all see a drawing of... A young woman in her late teens or early 20s. Journal says her name is Thalia Palacios. And the objective says find her and decide her fate. The ink for her, it almost seems as if it's like flowing in place. Like it's moving. Like the script isn't firmly set in and almost like it's threatening to bleed off the page. This is extremely ominous. Mm. Yeah, I, um... Decide her fate. I think I've had enough of deciding fates, honestly, between between you and me. Yeah, I've also never seen the journal do this before. That sounds like a lot of pressure. Oh, that's... Apparently you're going to... Sweetgrass? Oh, no. What's a sweetgrass? Oh, I oh, don't no. want to go back to sweetgrass. Thank you very What's much. A... What's a... We, we went there once for... Well, they went there once for a mission, and there was plants. But you know what? I'm sure it'll be fine and nice and easy now that we've gotten rid of the mayor. Oh, yeah, that's true. He's We got rid of the, the creepy tree that's that needed human sacrifices mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know what was the worst thing about that place? Mm -hmm. The teens? The teens. Yeah. 
I don't think they were so bad. I, I definitely think the plants were worse. All they did was lie. Uh, that's what they do. That's what they do. <laughs> what what was the tree eating? Uh, uh, pe- people. People. Well, the mayor, I mean, I don't know if the tree was eating them, but the mayor was offering it human sacrifices to mm-hmm. power its dark engine. Dreadful. Yeah. But we they burned down the tree. It was really sick. I think Linda came in with like a flamethrower or something. It was wow. pretty rad. Yeah. Here, you can check it out. And Zen opens up her journal to chapter two. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a magic treehouse book. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, so, that's what the Eternity Archives is. We're just a magic treehouse, y'all. Oh, I wish so, I hadn't said that. <laughs> teens. Yeah, you know, teenagers. They're they're not kids. Teenagers. They're not adults. They uh, they go to high school. They uh, have cliques and social gatherings and get into all sorts of trouble. They're old enough to have opinions, but not old enough to have rights. <laughs> oh, you you were a teen once, Magnolia. Yes, I remember being a teenage person and going to school and. Having opinions, but not yet having rights. Real is just looks like that monkey puppet meme where it like looks off to the <laughs> side and then it looks forward and it's just like avoiding because Real's the only one who knows what Magnolia is, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Real's just like, yep, this is this is all this all tracks. Magnolia has been a normal teen human at one point. Maybe I will do this job. Okay, I mean. I was hoping you would do this job. Um, I think I will do this job. Okay, great. They kind of put their hands on their hips and puff out like, yes, I have decided to do this job. Oh, well, it'll be fun having you with us. This is a momentous day for the library. (laughs) I don't know if I dread this or not. I don't know if this is like good (gasps) for us. Bullying! Workplace bullying, Rill! Uh... I don't know, just with the way you were so... I've never heard the journal scream before, and somehow you've managed to... No, never. But they do it all the time. No, they don't. (laughs) We'll figure it out, Ril. This is is what we do. We figure things out. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. I guess I will wait for you all back here. And they give you a thumbs up. Take good care of us, Ril. Uh, I will... I will try. We'll bring you some pie back. Oh, yeah. Oh, they did have good pie, didn't they? So, you all step through the portal, and you feel that familiar strange tugging of reality unmaking and remaking you as it encompasses your entire body, molding you into the shape best fit for this mission. Your shoes land on soft ground. The warm air is heavy with moisture and the smell of leaves, dirt, and sweet fruit fill your lungs. Despite the sound of birds chirping and insects buzzing, you can't help but feel a sense of fragile silence hanging in the air. And that's when you see her, a young woman sitting at the base of a tree, her knees bent towards her chest, as she looks at your party with wide, piercing golden eyes and a shocked expression. Her hands are covering her mouth and you recognize that this is the figure in your journals. And that's where we'll pick up next time here on the Eternity Archives. The 
The Eternity Archives is hosted, produced, and edited by Dorka, Bappy, and Ziva. Find us on Twitter at, at @thearchivespod or online at theeternityarchives.com. Our intro music is Paint the Sky by Hans Adam, and sound effects are obtained from zapsplat.com. Check out our show notes for more information and some helpful resources. Consider supporting us by telling your friends about us, or leave us a tip at our Ko-fi page, ko-fi.com slash theeternityarchives. Subscribe to our Ko-fi for all sorts of exclusive bonuses, behind-the-scenes content, and other fun surprises. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.